Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Manager. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Podkel, the Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at KIND, Kids in Need of Defense. She is also an international human rights lawyer and expert on child migration to the United States. She is also the author of The Impact of Externalization of Migration Controls on the Rights of Asylum Seekers and Other Migrants, a paper published by CMS's Journal on Migration and Human Security. Here's our conversation. Before we get into the meat of your paper, can you tell me a bit about your background, how you became interested in immigration, and in particular, the protection of child migrants? Sure. You know, I have to say my first real interest to this was when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras. I was there right after Hurricane Mitch, um, you know, about 20 years ago. And, you know, after the devastation of the hurricane, I saw a lot of my friends who lived in my community struggle with the decision about migrating. Now, conditions were very different in Honduras. It was a lot safer then. And so the reasons for migration are dramatically different than they are now. Um, but the exacerbating you know, trauma of the hurricane and the devastation it left behind certainly left a lot of families in uh, a position of making tough decisions about whether or not they could safely stay and care for their families. Um, and for me, that was something I had never been exposed to before and was very um, concerned about it, but also very interested about how and why people make decisions and what is where does that leave families and children. Um, that was really the inspiration for me getting into this line of work. So thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, in 2016, you co-authored a paper with Bill Freelich of Human Rights Watch and Ian Keisel of ACLU, um, which was published in the Center for Migration Studies Journal on Migration and Human Security. And the title of that paper was The Impact of the Externalization of Migration Controls on the Rights of Asylum Seekers and Other Migrants. Can you just to start off, explain what that phrase externalization of migration controls means. Sure. I think traditionally people think about migration control, you know, at a country's border, right? So you have to show your passport or you have to show your visa when you present um, for entrance to a country. And so a lot of people think that that only happens at borders. So, you know, at an airport or a land crossing. And what Ian and Bill and I, you know, were noticing was countries have started pushing their borders out past the physical border, right? And so trying to manage who's migrating into a territory before they even get to the border. And our concern was what we really wanted to look at in this paper is, are there any violations of rights of when a country does that? Right. And in your paper, one of the examples of border externalization is the Obama administration's response to an increase of unaccompanied minors in the summer of 2014. Can you describe what happened that summer and also what the Obama administration's response was? So in 2014, we saw an unprecedented number of children presenting at the U.S.-Mexico border asking for protection. And there were so many and the government was unprepared for them that we started to see children 
basically piling up in border patrol stations. You know, the infrastructure, the entity that's responsible for the care and custody of kids wasn't ready, didn't have enough beds, facilities, workers to care for these kids. And so the government was caught flat-footed and realized that this was just not a one-off. This wasn't just going to be a, a problem that they were going to be facing for a couple months. It was that conditions had deteriorated significantly in some countries in Central America and that there was going to be high numbers of unaccompanied children and families coming to the U.S. asking for protection. And so in response to it, they did all sorts of things. Part of it was trying to deter refugees from coming to the U.S. to ask for protection. So an example of, you know, one example of that was reopening the family detention facilities and holding families in detention. Another tactic that they used was trying to enlist other governments in cooperation to stop migrants before they were able to reach the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and so, for example, in 2015, there was significant um, aid and efforts in, in bilateral negotiations with Mexico to get Mexico to do some of the stopping of migration of asylum seekers so that they couldn't reach the U.S. borders. And we were incredibly worried about that. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, that paper came out in 2016 and so much has happened. Could you provide an update on what's happened in terms of the United States trying to externalize its borders? What was the impact of the Trump administration, also of COVID? Sure. You know, and I think it's important to note when we tried to do in the paper was show this was just the United States is not unique in this tactic either, right? I mean, we were seeing the same things happening in Europe. We were seeing the same things happening with Australia, trying to externalize their borders. And so I think what we wanted to do is really raise the alarm bell that's to say globally, this is not a practice that entities should be engaged in, government should be engaged in, because there's a very high risk of violating rights when you do that. So we wanted to make sure that we were making the point that the US was not alone in this. Um, unfortunately, right, we've seen really a doubling down of the strategy, particularly in the United States, right? So during the Trump administration, there were several efforts that went way beyond the Obama administration's efforts to try to externalize, externalize our borders as well, that were incredibly troubling, that violated rights of asylum seekers and unaccompanied children. Um, you know, and I think everyone's waiting with bated breath to see how the Biden administration is going to respond to this. Um, you know, some examples, that we saw with the Trump administration, for example, were the um, ACAs, so agreements with other countries to say that if somebody travels through their country, they have to ask for asylum there. Otherwise, they're not going to be eligible to ask for asylum in the United States. So an example is with Guatemala, right? So Guatemala was in this position where they were asked to enter into this agreement, you know, and this is the United States negotiating with a country who receives significant aid from the U.S., right? So the U.S. has a lot of leverage when they make these kinds of requests to smaller countries, um, asking that they enter into these agreements. So that if a person was leaving, you know, felt like they had to flee their home in Honduras and they're traveling through Guatemala, that they would be forced to ask for asylum in Guatemala and not be allowed to do so if they came to the United States. Now, obviously, this was incredibly troubling for many reasons, right? One reason is Guatemala didn't really have a 
large functioning asylum system that could receive the numbers of people who are fleeing Honduras, right? Secondly, a lot of people, if they're fleeing Honduras, they may not be safe in Guatemala. It's very close, right? Um, gangs often have, you know, larger territories, um, so somebody could not be safe or would be able to sustain themselves, right? I mean, I think what we see globally is that when refugees flee their countries of origin, they go to a place where they know somebody, right? Where, they, where they're going to have support. And so if somebody's fleeing, you know, if their support system is in Mexico or it's in Costa Rica or it's the United States, they may be better off and could integrate better into society if they end up in a place where they have that kind of support system. Um, so, you know, we were very troubled by this doubling down of the Trump administration of externalization policies um, and, you know, hope there's going to be a dramatic uh, departure from these practices under the new administration. In the last uh, several weeks, there's again been an increase in the number of unaccompanied minors who are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border and seeking protection. Could you share what factors are causing this increase? And then also, how is the Biden administration managing Sure. So, you know, for a long time, nobody could ask for protection in the United States because the Trump administration had put forward a policy using the authority under Title 42, a public health policy saying our the U.S.-Mexico border was going to be closed to anybody asking for protection. So what happened was we saw lots of unaccompanied children basically languishing and waiting in northern Mexico for a chance to be able to ask for protection in the United States because they didn't feel like they could return to their country of origin. So once the Biden administration made the decision to to follow the law and allow unaccompanied children to present and ask for protection, we saw very, very large numbers. I think nobody was expected. Nobody was surprised that there were going to be large numbers. Um, I think the size of the numbers and the speed in which they're coming, I think, has been a little bit of a surprise. Um, but, you know, what happened was the Biden administration really released a pressure valve. You know, there were these this ballooning population in northern Mexico in these refugee camps waiting to ask for protection. When the Biden administration opened the doors, you know, we're seeing these large numbers of kids um, who are asking and needing to ask for protection. So that's what we're seeing right now. Adults and families still are generally subject to Title 42. That doesn't mean that they're not there waiting and hoping for their opportunity to ask for protection as well. So I think that, you know, like we saw in 2014, like we saw in 2018, sometimes it's the unaccompanied kids are a little bit the canary in the coal mine. They come first, right? And then the family units um, are traveling separately. Um, so I'm, I would not be surprised if we're going to see that same pattern again. Yeah, and given that trend what's going on right now, all the recent history, what are your top two or three policy recommendations um, that the Biden administration could adopt um, so that there's more humane border management and that children especially are being protected? Yeah, so I think they need to, they made a difficult choice in allowing unaccompanied kids to present. It was the absolute right choice to do, both legally under law um, and also, you know, just out of humanity to make sure that kids can ask for protection. But it was the harder choice, right? It's been hard to make sure that they have the capacity to receive these children in a humane way, get them, you know, to a sponsor's home and then allow them to go through the process to ask for protection. 
we want to make sure they keep doing that, right? We do not want them to roll back, you know, their decision about allowing children to present. So we, we think it's imperative that they're very clear that unaccompanied kids can present for protection, both at ports of entry and also between ports of entry. But I also think, too, there's a distinction between border externalization, stopping anybody from coming to your country versus regional collaboration, Right. So I want to be very clear. So when we say, you know, that Mexico has said recently they're going to close their southern border. Right. We're trying to get clarity. Are they saying that they're also closing it to unaccompanied children? Are they closing it to asylum seekers or is it, you know, a a different kind of closure? Is it more about commerce? You know, we're trying to get clarity on that because, again, we want to make sure that those in need of protection because of the rights that attach to them under international law uh, as asylum seekers, as refugees, that they can go where they need to go to ask for protection. However, there are collaborative actions that they can take that respect the rights of uh, those in search of protection and um, help manage migration so that it can be more predictive and it can be more orderly. So one example of that is that the United States and Mexico should really work together to ensure that when an unaccompanied child is identified by a government, either government, that they take, they do a best interest analysis so that they analyze what is really in the best interest of this child. For example, if Mexico determines that the child has a parent or family member in the United States, they may make the consideration that is actually in the child's best interest to ask for protection in the United States, right? Because there's going to be support for that child, they might have an easier time integrating, and that the governments work together to make sure that the child can do the pres- can present for protection um, at the U.S.-Mexico border. So I think, you know, it's a fine line, but we want to make sure that the collaboration is not intended just to stymie someone's ability to ask for protection, but rather it's done in a way that countries can burden share to make sure that they're all working together to do support and take humanitarian action and do it in a way that's going to be in the best interest of the person in search of protection. Right. And that's not easy. So what do you think it would take to really put those policy recommendations into action? You know, how can the U.S. really live up to all of its legal obligations to protect children and also families? You know, I think this is a matter of resources, which we're very happy to see that the Biden administration is serious about committing resources to this, because if if they don't, we're going to be here next year, the year after, you know, under the next administration, you know, there really is, has been, and we've been happy to see a commitment to try to address the root causes. And I think building up protection frameworks is what it's going to take. So for example, when we're sending aid to the, the sending countries in Central America, make sure we're doing it that we're helping build up their child protection systems, right? They, so that they have the ability to protect children so that they can help with the analysis, so that they can continue contribute to best interest analyses of children on the move, um, that the U.S. and Mexico are working together, not just security entities collaborating, right, in terms of stopping migration, but that the protection um, entities are sufficiently resourced and collaborate and are in constant communication with each other so that we can have a more receptive model and a more um, orderly process of how countries can work together you know, and identify what are the shortcomings perhaps in one country, what can other countries do to help support and resource them so that everybody can be equal partners in ensuring safety. And we're kind of 
coming to coming to the end of our interview here, and I want to ask you also, you know, what is Kind doing right now to protect uh, children? Um, and if possible, can you tell us about someone who's been impacted by Kind's work? Sure. I mean, Kind is really trying to take a holistic approach to the you know, the needs of children on the move, right? The ultimate goal is that a child feels safe in their home and they never feel the need to have to leave their home in search of protection. That's the ultimate goal. In the meantime, though, there are kids on the move who need protection um, at all steps of the journey. So we're really trying to address and look at this and make recommendations on what governments can do soup to nuts, right? From the moment that the child departs, you know, during their journey to ensure that there is safe reception, that there is care and custody, there's not a reliance on punitive detention models for children, and that they have a fair ability to tell their story so that an adjudicator, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Costa Rica, whether it's in Mexico, can really get to the bottom of a child's story and determine who needs protection and who could safely be returned to their country of origin. And if they're going to be returned, how do you do reintegration support so that that child really feels like that they can stay and that we've addressed the reason for their migration in the first time? Um, so that means, you know, KIND has an office in Mexico now. We have offices along the border to make sure that kids during their journey are safe, uh, that Mexico is able to really consider the best interests of the child and make sure that kids have an advocate, a legal advocate who can support them and work with them. Um, explaining to them their rights so the kids understand their rights, they understand what the options are, what the obligations are to ask for protection and how you do it, and then accompany them through the process. Um, we're helping with kids who want to present at the U.S.-Mexico border so that they understand how to do it, and we can help prepare the governments on how to make that pre presentation safe so that kids aren't dying in the desert. Um, and then also, finally, when they get to the U.S., make sure that when they're in government custody that it's safe and appropriate that they're quickly reunified with a family member and that they have an attorney to accompany them through the very complex legal process. Um, and then make sure that you know the decision is the right one and that if a child needs to go back um, and or decides to go back, that we can support them in their reintegration um, in their country of origin. Um, you know, there's so many examples of kids that we've worked with right now. It's hard to think of just one. Um, but I will say, you know, because there's so much attention right now on the border and what's been happening to the kids who've been waiting to ask for protection, you know, one example I can say is we recently worked with three very young siblings. It was actually their uh, parent was killed while they were waiting in Mexico, waiting for the opportunity to ask for help. Um, the children were, have just been able to present to the United States so that they can start the process um, and have been reunified with an extended family member here. Um, you know, it's going to take a long time for these kids to heal from what they went through, but to know that they're in a place where they're safe and they're being cared for by somebody who loves them very much um, is a good start for this, you know, and we're anxious to, you know, accompany them through the rest of the process. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Of course, I'm really grateful for you all spending time to talk about this issue because it's so important and to frame it in a rights-based narrative. So thank you. If you want to learn more about the Center for Migration Studies Journal on Migration and Human Security, please visit cmsny.org slash jmhs. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by The Music Case, 
For more podcasts like this one, you can follow CMS On Air on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find a full transcript of this episode, or get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.